3: Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. On this show, we've talked to people like John Legend, Martina Navratilova, Kareem, Noam Chomsky, and that's been an absolute blast. But I've also wanted to gear this show towards speaking to grassroots activists who are fighting at that intersection of sports and social justice. And this week, we got somebody really special. Her name is Isabel Tier, athlete at Georgetown, and she has been part of a movement that has been challenging the school's deep and long-term and highly lucrative financial relationship with Nike and guess what she's winning
4: it was pretty scary as a student-athlete you know am I gonna get kicked off the team am I even allowed to be doing this there were certain coaches that sat down their whole teams and said you are not allowed to get involved in this movement
5: The
3: relationship between Georgetown and Nike is a shifting situation, and we have breaking news about a serious victory that Isabel Tier has been a part of. That we're going to reveal on this week's show.
4: I don't even have words when I when I found out about this. I've been working with a professor, and when he called me in to talk to me about this, uh, we just hugged each other, and I thought we were both going to start crying. It's such a big victory.
3: And later in the podcast, we are going to speak to comedian W. Kamau Bell about his new CNN program, United Shades of America, debuting this Sunday, April 24th at 10 p.m. Eastern. So let's kick off the interview with Isabel Teer speaking about what exactly it is that is so problematic about the way Nike manufactures its products.
4: It's hard to target simply Nike because sweatshop issues aren't related to just Nike. The reason that we're focusing on Nike right now is because they've recently uh, said they would no longer allow the Worker Rights Consortium access to their factories.
3: What is the Workers' Rights Consortium?
4: It is an independent monitoring organization that was actually co-founded by Georgetown back in 2001. A lot of universities, uh, 186 right now, use the worker rights consortium to go into these factories and make sure their codes are being upheld. Their university codes of conduct to make sure that university apparel is being manufactured in the most ethical way possible. Mm. Yeah.
3: And so Nike just withdrew from this consortium. Do we know why they did that?
4: You know, Nike will say that they haven't had a change in policy. The letters they've released, the correspondence they've had with the universities have been along the lines of, whoa, nothing's changed here. But um, that's just simply not true. Uh, Nike has a history of... Being really cooperative with the Worker Rights Consortium of Nike employees literally driving people from the WRC to their factories, uh, helping them gain access to conduct their investigations and things like this. So this is a change in policy.
3: And Nike is saying explicitly, basically, we don't want monitoring of what could be labor abuses in our factories that make our products.
4: Essentially, what Nike is doing is saying the only people they want monitoring are the ones they say are okay. That takes away the whole premise of independent monitoring. Mm -hmm. The whole point of being independent is that it isn't, you know, tied to Nike in any way. It's meant to come in and not deal with any sort of conflicts of interest.
3: What inspired you to take action on your campus to become an activist around this issue on campus?
4: It all started when I was taking a class and we were going around a circle and my teacher asked us each to look in uh, the tag of the shirts we were wearing And it's just something I hadn't thought about before. You know, you look at the tags and it's made in Vietnam, made in China, made in Indonesia, made in Honduras. And you start asking yourself why. And so that was the beginning of my interest in these issues. But what really sparked my desire to work with Georgetown was when uh, activist Jim Keaty came to campus and gave a presentation about how Nike sweatshop issues really weren't over. And I started working with several student athletes.
3: Jim Keady a former soccer coach at St. John's. Is that right?
4: Yes, exactly. And got very involved in uh, Nike sweatshop issues, uh, activism surrounding that. And he just gave a really inspiring talk about this. And several student athletes, uh, we got together and we said, we're sponsored by Nike. We wander around every day. We've All of our gear, you know, we got the big swoosh on our shoes, on our jerseys, on everything.
3: Yeah, I I met some of you guys. You guys are just swooshed out on this campus. I
4: mean, everything that you have, the university gives you all this apparel. And, you know, Nike is just as big as the Georgetown logo on Mm. a lot of the stuff. And you get into weird territory. Who am I endorsing? You know, who am I really representing right now? And if I have a big swoosh right next to my Georgetown logo and my sailing logo or whatever sport it is, What does that mean? And what is this company that I am publicizing so much?
3: So what have you and your allies, the other student athletes, what what have you done to raise awareness on campus and what has your goal been?
4: Well, we started out by just having several meetings, trying to recruit as many students and also student athletes as possible. Because as we've seen, you know, student activism is huge on campuses, but also student athletes have a huge amount of power. So it started out when after the Jim Keaty talk, uh, one of the girls I was working with got really fired up and taped over the logo. …on her Nike shoes and tweeted this picture out. and had yeah, kind of, black electrical tape over the Nike. Yeah, one. it was duct tape. And right. she tweeted this out with several other people on her team. And it, it kind of went viral pretty quickly. And that just shows how powerful this is, you know? Like all of a sudden Yahoo's reporting on it. You got Barstool on it. Barstool wasn't exactly, you know, in favor. <laughs> but it just showed how much power student athletes have in, you know, getting these issues to be talked about and raising awareness for them. And so that's how it all started with that. And then from there, we started figuring out, you know, okay, so Nike has these sweatshop issues. What is our specific goal? Right. Because, you know, you have to have a goal like that. It It isn't as easy as saying, oh, well, we're going to tape over our shoes and solve sweatshop issues, you know? It's a huge problem. And so what's something specific that we could look at? And that's when the issue with the WRC came to light. It was back in October. The Hansei factory there was a worker strike there and,
3: and where's the hansei
4: factory i, th- I want to say vietnam so there's a worker strike there and the wrc went to investigate and nike uh, didn't allow them access
3: wow so the hansei factory went on strike the wrc which 186 different campuses has connections to yes uh, and the wrc went to investigate and nike would not allow them to
4: yeah and so that's where it gets fuzzy because nike doesn't own these factories and this is the way that so many apparel industries, you know, work is that they subcontract through these factories and are therefore able to deny responsibility because they don't own the factories. You know, they just kind of work with the factories. But Nike has the power to get you know, monitoring organizations in there. And in the past, they've really cooperated with the WRC. And so this was a really big change. All of a sudden, the WRC came to do exactly what it had been doing.
3: You know, it's so creepy. That's when you say that, what what rings in my head is that that's what weapons manufacturers say when they sell arms to countries that commit human rights violations. Yeah. They say it's it's not us. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the country. All we're doing is selling a product. Yeah. I mean, that, that's, a, that's a very uh, morally dicey kind of reasoning. And I imagine it's difficult to sell Morally dicey reasoning to a Jesuit school like Georgetown that proclaims social justice as one of its missions is that correct that well, there's that contradiction there
4: of course, and that 's why this was such an issue for all of us we 're wandering around and we go to a Jesuit university that talks about educating the whole person you know you 're not just there to get a good education you 're there to really cultivate you know your soul like what 's going on with you know your body, your soul, your mind, and everything. I mean, Georgetown's slogan, men and women for others. Mm. And so you have this Jesuit university with these really high ideals. And all of a sudden, we're looking at the things that are going on with the main apparel manufacturer at Georgetown. And it's like, why are we supporting this? Why aren't we taking a stand to help these people if we are men and women for others?
3: So your central demand was... Georgetown needs to break its connection with Nike until Nike rejoins the WRC?
4: Yes. So we started a group called Athletes and Advocates for Workers' Rights, and we – sent a letter to President DeJoya, essentially explaining what had just happened, why this was such a big deal, and that we um, wanted Georgetown to break ties with Nike unless they uh, allowed the WRC back in. Mm. And this started a very long process working with Georgetown's Licensing Oversight Committee and trying to figure out how we respond to this issue.
3: Now, what was the response of the athletic department when you started to make waves about the connection with Nike? And speak a little bit, please, with that about the history historic connection between Nike and the Georgetown Athletic Department because it runs pretty damn deep.
4: Yeah, it goes deep. And Georgetown has a very strong relationship with Nike. You know, we have a a Nike store right in Georgetown with John Thompson's quote up on the wall, all the basketball jerseys from past uh, Georgetown players.
3: Just for listeners, that's referring to legendary retired Georgetown coach John Thompson Jr. Currently, the coach is John Thompson III. And John Thompson Jr., otherwise known as Big John, John, he sits on the board of Nike yes. right now. Mm-hmm. So, the person most identified with Georgetown in the public eye, who I think, without question, even more than Bill Clinton, is John Thompson Jr., yeah. also sits on the board of Nike.
4: Yeah. He That's does. wild. No, it's. Uh... And you're
3: taking this on. So, you're not just taking on a relationship that exists in 2016 and the WRC issue, you're taking on like 30 to 40 years of institutional power. Yeah. At Georgetown.
4: And to, we didn't really realize what we were getting ourselves into yeah. when we started this. And um, so, you know, I just want to take a moment to say the response from the athletic department and the response from the university have been kind of two different things. Talk about it. And so the athletic department, we had a pretty rocky start with them. One of the girls I was working with, we got called into the office, you know, kind of, why are you doing this? Like, what's the real issue? And – um, it, it was pretty scary as a student athlete, you know am I going to get kicked off the team like am, am I even allowed to be doing this and so we started looking at our contracts as student athletes so what's the code of conduct for student athletes? How am I different from a regular student at this university and um, what we found was really that we should be allowed to participate in student activism in the same way that every other student is. We aren't athlete students we're student athletes and It was really hard when there were certain coaches that sat down their whole teams and said, you are not allowed to get involved in this movement.
3: And can I tell you, I've had that independently verified from other people since you told me that when we spoke a couple of weeks back. Mm -hmm. And that to me is so stunning. And I want to highlight that in like huge, huge, like fluorescent magic marker here, because you are a student on this campus and you have coaches who allegedly are supposed to be educators telling you not to speak about issues with other students. Yes. That seems like a stunning impingement on your basic rights as students, not to mention the
4: basic mission of what it means to get an education. Yeah. it's It was a huge issue starting off this movement because – As a student athlete, you're sitting there and you're trying to reach out to other peers being like, this is something we should care about. We wander around decked out in this gear every day. And you walk up to your friends who are on different teams and you say, hey, will you get involved? And they're like, you know, I care about this, but my coach won't let me. Mm. And that's really hard because they want to get involved. But what happens when you're forbidden from having a voice simply because you're an athlete? What happens when you're kind of intimidated into, you know, not being able to speak out freely. And that was – and one of the reasons that I've been able to really continue with this movement is my coach has never told me I couldn't do this. Right. You know,
3: he um, – Which probably has something to do with the fact that it's a non-revenue sport too, yeah.
4: right? I mean probably. But also he, he recognizes my, my right – to have a voice and participate in student activism on campus. And I just
3: want to highlight that again, because I want people, my listeners out there, imagine being 19 years old and having one group of adults who you're there to learn from tell you, question your, the tags on your clothes, question what's around you, think about the world. And then you have this whole other group being like, shut up and play, mm-hmm. you know, mind your business, keep quiet, keep those checks coming. That must be, I think, really difficult. Especially, once again, it's like you're 19, you're trying to figure out the world, maybe you're away from home for the first time, and you've got two entirely separate messages from people that you're supposed to look up to.
4: Yeah. No, and and the thing is, is that student athletes definitely have an interest in social issues and activism. I mean, the basketball team uh, went out to warm up, I think, about a year ago, wearing um, shirts that said, I can't breathe, referring to the whole Eric Garner situation. And so- People do want to talk about issues and and activism. And so it was really frustrating when we looked at this issue and it was like, why is this being so shut down?
3: That's interesting, too, that you raise that because it speaks to where the invisible line is as far as what you can or cannot cross. And it's like if you have um, athletes, particularly um, black basketball players, uh, like of the highest possible cultural caliber, people like LeBron James, Derrick Rose, Carmelo Anthony wearing I Can't Breathe shirts. That creates space for Georgetown athletes to do that. So police brutality you can speak about. But Nike, that's a bridge too far.
4: Well, it's – it. Goes back to Georgetown's relationship with Nike. You know, what are you messing with when you talk about Nike to a school that has such a big contract with that company?
3: Wow. Now you have some breaking news. And before you said the breaking news, you mentioned before President Mm DeJoya. Who is President DeJoya?
4: You know, he's the president of Georgetown University, and he's uh, the longest running president. um, Don DeJoya. I want to say, yeah, John DeJoya, and he has been an ally. In this situation. And that's where I'm talking about the difference between, you know, what we got from the athletic department and what we got from uh, the administration. And you
3: have some breaking news.
4: Yes. So what happened was the licensing oversight committee at Georgetown... Um, is a committee set up to deal with issues just like this. Who Who makes our apparel? Who are the licensees of Georgetown? Are they following our code of conduct? And what came out a while back was that Nike was the only licensee of Georgetown that wasn't required to sign our code of conduct, which is a huge deal. For the past, you know, 15 years, they've been held to a different standard than all the other licensees. And so when this information came out, it was like, whoa, what are we doing? And so the Licensing Oversight Committee really took this seriously and passed a recommendation to the University's administration and to the president, saying we will not be renewing our contract with Nike unless uh, they sign our code of conduct and bring themselves up to the same standard as other licensees in regards to the collegiate licensing companies contracts.
3: Wow, and this is just uh, at the end of last week.
4: Yeah, this is very recent. It's so just no freaking.
3: response yet from Nike. No response yet from the Thompson family. No response yet from the athletic department.
4: No response yet. We're That's still huge. waiting. Yeah, and then the other thing that happened, which is just as important, was that one of the other recommendations was DeJoya send a letter to Nike stating our support for the Worker Rights Consortium. This is an organization we helped found. You know, this is something we should be standing behind. And DeJoya came out in this letter saying that the Worker Rights Consortium is something we stand behind. And we would please encourage you to help facilitate their investigations in your factories.
3: Wow. Now, when I spoke to you a couple of weeks back, You spoke of feeling very embattled. Now that you've gotten this victory, do you feel like there's just like more oxygen on campus now, maybe to talk to other student athletes, you putting your chin out a little more being like, yeah, what's up? We were right.
4: Yeah, it's it's feel good. It feels really good to have this. And it's interesting because, yeah, exactly. You have this happen. And just last night, there was a, a little blurb that got sent out in the Georgetown student newspaper, The Hoya, about this um, happening. And I had a lacrosse player reach out to me and be like, hey, just read the article. So excited this happened. I've been kind of whiting out the little Nike swooshes on my shoes for a while. And and I'm so happy about that because that hearing that, you know, this wasn't just a couple (laughs) of crazy people going against Nike being like, oh, wait, this is a real issue empowers other people to stand up and be like, oh,
3: I mean, this is really a couple of students going up against the most powerful corporate nexus on campus. Mm. And it looks like you're winning. You know, how's that feel?
4: If I don't even have words when I when I found out about this, I've been working with a professor, Professor John Klein, who's on the licensing oversight committee. And when he called me in to talk to me about this, uh, we just hugged each other and I thought we were both going to start crying it's such a big victory to have this happen. And, you know, this isn't just Georgetown. This is so many other schools that are trying to stand up and make this happen, you know, and it feels good to have Georgetown where, where it should be. You know, mm. this is – Georgetown is a high-profile university, a Jesuit university that has such high standards. And when Georgetown lives up to those standards, it's awesome. Wow.
3: Georgetown University has been in the news a great deal this past week because of the study and revelation that this incredible coalition of Georgetown alums and professors and students are slowly uncovering the fact that almost 250 slaves were sold in 1832 just to keep the university solvent. Mm -hmm. Uh, This was a front page issue on The New York Times. Is there any connective tissue between what seems like a thirst for reconciliation and and racial justice on campus with what you are trying to do in terms of making the school more accountable? Because I imagine it would be pretty contradictory for President DeJoya to be like, we're committed to righting past wrongs. And oh, by the way, Nike's awesome. Mm-hmm.
4: Yeah, I mean, it's student activism at its core, you know, and these and two- that feeds each other. Yeah, exactly. Um, these two movements, you know, the article that just came out, you know, I haven't been super involved in that. But it is at the core student activism. And it's Georgetown taking the time to engage conversations that Mm -hmm. need to be engaged. And um, that makes me proud of Georgetown. You know, obviously, there are huge issues going on in terms of racial justice and how the university is responding. But I'm happy that Georgetown's engaging this conversation, you know, that it isn't just shutting this down because Mm -hmm. this is something that needs to be talked about. As well, there was just the African-American studies program that Georgetown set up and DeJoya signed off on, which is, you know, another another big victory.
3: Yeah, and changing the name of uh, campus buildings, right? Yeah, the
4: campus buildings, Milady Hall, um, which was named after the president of George- Georgetown who helped sell – the slaves, there was a big sit-in in the president's office to change the name of this building, and uh, that happened. And they the, won. Yeah, those student activists made that happen, and it's now called Freedom Hall.
3: Wow. Freedom Hall, and one just feeds the other. I mean, I really do believe that. That if you're DeJoya and you're sitting there, it's like, how can I name Freedom Hall and say freedom for everybody except for people trying to have decent working conditions for the products that our student athletes wear? That's, that's, that's how I think like what you've done and what all the students have done is created its own kind of web, even if it's not conscious.
4: Yeah. I mean, Georgetown, they've, they're doing a really good job with engaging these issues. And, um, we have a history of supporting really good companies, you know, and so when this Nike thing comes out, it's important to respond to it. Georgetown's a huge supporter of Alta Gracia, which is um, located in the Dominican Republic, and it's one of the only factories of its kind or companies of its kind that um, it pays their workers a living wage. And so how do we, you know, support that so much? And then at the same time, we're putting Nike above them, you know?
3: I don't know if you're familiar with who uh, Darren Ravel is. Uh, He's the ESPN money reporter. If he was here right now, his head would have exploded because he he, he loves Nike the way like little kids love Drake. I mean, (laughs) Nike is his Drake. And he was on Twitter yesterday saying that um, Nike... Is not a sweatshop. Nike pays workers what the market allows, and the workers are working there willingly. Yeah. And the arguments I'm sure you've heard before. Yes, and that this is just the free market at work. Mm-hmm. And people who oppose this oppose the free market. And then when someone challenged him on it, he said, um, "How dare you?" I did. A, I traveled to Southeast Asia, did a report on this, and was nominated for an Emmy. So I don't know if you feel qualified enough to challenge someone who is nominated for an Emmy because that's just. Amazing. So I wonder if you could respond to that argument, let's say, because I'm sure you've heard it before, Mm -hmm. that opposing Nike is actually opposing the lifting people out of poverty and the free market at work.
4: You have so many people saying things like that. And when you actually do research on these issues and you look at it and you go and you study and you talk to the people, you know, we had a, a Nike worker come to Georgetown and speak to us and tell us about the conditions she was working in. And that changes your perspective. All of a sudden, you sit there and you say, you know, this doesn't have to be happening. This isn't something that is just the way the world works. This is based out of greed and selfishness. And all humans deserve dignity in work. And so when you have this woman come to Georgetown and sit there and talk about, you know, her 16-plus work hours, her poverty wages, you know, her everything like this, you all of a sudden say, why is a multi-billion-dollar corporation – claiming that this is just how the world works and then you talk to this woman who's not really able to afford food for her family. It just wow. it doesn't line up.
3: So so you're saying that a worker at a Nike factory might know more than the money reporter for ESPN?
4: Well, yeah, you just look at the difference between those two people. You're you're making a lot of money reporting for ESPN. What gives you a right to speak about the life of this impoverished woman from Thailand? You know that is being exploited by a multi-billion-dollar corporation.
3: Isabel Tier, thank you so much for joining us on the Edge of Sports podcast.
4: Yeah, no problem. I had a blast. Run.
3: And now we're going to speak to friend of the show, comedian W. Kamau Bell, about his new program on CNN called United Shades of America, which debuts this Sunday, April 24th. I saw the trailer. You met with the Klan in the dark of night yeah. on an abandoned road.
5: What yeah. the f- Dude, <laughs> dude, I'm trying to get to season two. This guy said he was coming alone. Why did I believe him? Camera crew or not, this seems like a bad idea. Is there like insurance issues with this? I mean, I, you know, what? there was a lot of questioning and talk about that. And a lot of like there was a lot of hand wringing, but not so much hand wringing that they didn't allow me to do it. You know what I'm saying? And, and I've met your wife. She likes you.
3: You know, she wants yeah. you around. What did she think?
5: I mean, there was, there was definitely my wife, my mom, my dad were all like asking questions about security. And you'll really appreciate this. They said we've hired you, security guy. He's an ex LAPD officer. <laughs> and I was like, okay. <laughs> now who's my security for my security? Oh man, you were put here to protect us. <laughs> but who <laughs> protects us from you? Dude,
3: so, so you're you're in an LAPD clan sandwich in a yeah, in yeah. a dark night. Um, did you any? I mean, you watch the clip. It's kind of an amazing interview because you're kind of like, you're giving it to him a little bit. Okay. I'm proud of
0: my race. I'm proud to be white. you proud to be black man?
5: I am proud to be a black man.
3: Okay,
0: that's good. You're a black man. You married a black
5: woman? I'm married to a white woman.
0: You know what the Bible says about racial marriage? An abomination of sin.
5: On the list of sins, where is interracial marriage? There's like murder... And, and is interracial marriage equal to that, or is it— It
0: would be above because it's an abomination.
5: So it's so murder. So it's worse than murder?
0: Yeah.
5: Okay, all right.
3: Any trepidation? Any blood I mean, pressure issues?
5: I mean, yes, yeah, certainly I had my blood pressure medicine I took. I mean, it's funny because some people see the clip and wonder why I'm not giving it to them more, and some people see the clip and wonder why I did it at all. So I think it's really like a, a Rorschach test for where we all are at
3: that gets to the big question. Like, what is this show about? United Shades of America. I assume every week is not, let me meet with someone who could hurt me on an abandoned road.
5: Yeah, actually, episode two is about San Quentin. We wow. go to, I go to, I spend several days behind the, not, I'm not in San Quentin, but I spend several days with men who are, who are living in San Quentin. So it's really just about me challenging myself to go places that I wouldn't expect or that I don't think I should go.
3: So that's the common thread is you going places, where you might not otherwise be.
5: Yes, where under any other circumstances, I wouldn't, or like places where you might normally roll through and be like, I'm not stopping here. Mm. (laughs) But I'm like, let's get out and talk to people. So as a comedian, you know, I travel around the country and I'm always doing shows. And I'm always in these communities where it's like, like, for example, doing a show in Garden City, Kansas, and like, what is going on here? But you Mm. do the show, you get on the plane and you leave. This is about like embedding in those places and really getting to know people. And this idea that like, you know, we talk about the United States of America, but me and you both know, it's not that united. Right. <laughs> it's like the, and, the, and it's probably at least 50 different countries, if not more. Right. And so for me, it's about like, well, what does that mean? What does that look like? Can we make more room for each other's humanity? And so with the Klan, I was trying to use humor to show these guys, look, as much as I'm intimidated by the mythology and by the idea of this, at the end of the day, you're a bunch of humans. Mm-hmm. And I can sit down in here and talk to you, and I can make you laugh. I can be curious about how this all works. And I know at the end of the day that at least one of those guys went to bed like, "Uh uh-oh, I think I like a black guy.
3: (laughs) Did you ask uh, the Grand Wizard of, I believe it was Keystone County, did you ask if he'd issued out a formal
5: Trump endorsement yet? Did that come up? (laughs) You know, it's funny. When we shot that, uh, Trump was not considered, I don't think he had announced for president, because I don't think anybody announced it It was that long ago. And the Klan was this thing that was like nobody was talking about. Whereas now, you know, they're,
3: uh, bed <laughs> They're bed buddies. They're bed buddies. Now they have a dedicated hour on Fox where Mike Huckabee's show used to be. No, I'm yeah, just kidding. Exactly. <laughs> and, and, and that gets to my, my last question because, you know, for a lot of us who were totally biased fanatics, we wondered, yeah. where is Kamal Bell going to end up next? And CNN, that's an interesting <laughs> landing spot. And i just like, how did that come about? What does that say about where CNN is going because th- th- that's some that's something.
5: I think it's a, yeah, I mean, I think it says something about where CNN is going. I think it says something about where where uh, it where like sort of showbiz as a whole is going. If there had been no Anthony Bourdain on CNN or Morgan Spurlock or Lisa Ling or hell even Mike Rowe, if they hadn't sort of had all those people in there, and Mike Rowe and and Spurlock, Spurlock and Bourdain specifically were guys who were, were like, I think these guys are doing great work and Sporlock is a hero of mine. Mm-hmm. If those people hadn't made the way for me, I would it would have never made sense to me. Wow. So when they, when it was like, do you want to do this show on CNN? It's funny, like, there, there's this reputation of CNN, and I'm like, I was thinking about this new CNN, you know what I mean? hmm and as opposed to the one that everybody else is thinking about. And I think CNN is actually working hard to refresh the brand and, and create a new thing. And they've had success. I mean, Bourdain has brought them a boatload of Emmys. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. So, like, I think that getting the opportunity to work on a show that I wanted to make. And also, CNN was not a really difficult production partner. And at the end of the day, you know this. If somebody's going to give you money to do something, and they're going to let you do it the way you want to, hell yeah, that becomes super creatively important in a way that you don't think about before you start getting involved in show business.
3: No, no, no. The, the, the everyone's dream is to be Muhammad and have the mountain come to Muhammad, not exactly. to have to go to the
5: mountain. And you and got thanks to, thanks to totally biased. I I may not have a mountain, but I got like a like a, I got like a dune. <laughs> like, I got a hill so yeah you, know,
3: you got a hill to live on and I yeah. as opposed to die on and I, I gotta yeah. uh, God, thank God I'm glad you're okay that's my way like yeah. I saw the preview and I'm like I just want you to be okay
5: well it's funny I done. got a lot of that I got a lot of people who are like I said everything. I do are you okay? Are you gonna have security? It's hey we tasted a year ago, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> like you're retroactively hurt. <laughs> yeah, yeah. People are like they want to be worried now.
3: <laughs> <laughs> and and last question, when I first heard the show United Shades of America, I had a brief moment where I thought you were the new spokesperson for Benetton. Uh is that is there any kind of tie in there? <laughs>
5: well, I never bought the Benetton clothes, but I always liked the way those Benetton ads looked. <laughs> <laughs>
3: No, it's, it's a dope name for a show. The show looks amazing. And I'm serious, man. Like, wait, if it's if this Game of Thrones, to me, Game of Thrones, man, that's just dust on my shoulder. I am so psyched <laughs> for uni- United Shades of America. Congratulations.
5: Well, thank you, David. Anytime, and thank you for having me on. And hopefully I can come in and do a longer bit sometime.
3: Thank you, out, Bell, this Sunday, 10 p.m. Eastern, United Shades of America, CNN. You don't want to miss it. now it's time for a part of the show we call Choice Words, where I read from a column I've written in the last week or so from The Nation magazine about the intersection of sports and politics. And sometimes I go off and just speak about things that are on my mind as I'm reading it. And if people want to, they can follow along at a link in the description of this podcast. This week, the column is about Steph Curry and the North Carolina law HB2. So Steph Curry. I don't even think I even need to explain how gigantic this gentleman is right now on the sports landscape. I mean, the numbers speak for themselves. 73-9, and about to win back-to-back MVPs, averaged 30 points a game while shooting 50% from the field, 40% from three, 90% from the foul line, and, dude, hit over 400 three-point shots. In baseball terms, that would be like somebody setting the home run record with, like, 130 home runs. It's unreal. Now, Steph Curry is also from Charlotte, North Carolina. And given the laws passed aimed at codifying discrimination against LGBT people, and given that the NBA All-Star Game is going to be in Charlotte in 2017, it's only natural that Steph Curry would be asked repeatedly to comment on this legislation. Now, after initially declining to weigh in, Steph said the following. He said, I knew I would be asked about my views on the situation in North Carolina and potential ramifications on next year's All-Star Game in Charlotte, which I hope can be resolved. While I don't know enough about the North Carolina law to comment more fully, no one should be discriminated against. My faith and beliefs have always been the bedrock of my life. As a Christian, I am taught that we are all equal in the eyes of God. So I treat everyone the way I want to be treated, fairly, justly, and equally. I hope that is how we all treat each other." End quote. Now, some, and I know this is the internet, this is Tweet Street, and this is what happens, but some have already described these words as neutral, tepid, pathetic, blah, weak, cowardly, and one site suggested that he quote-unquote bricked it. I would argue that all of these analyses are so idiotically wrongheaded and in some respects actually express the worst aspects about what it means to try to build movements or social justice online. It's absurd to say that Curry's words are neutral, tepid, blah, etc. I, I would argue instead that Curry's words stand as a tribute To a movement that has refused to let LGBT people, and particularly trans people, be the new demons, the unwed mothers, the welfare queens, the crack babies of the religious right. And let's be honest, people expecting straight athletes, particularly male athletes, to lead LGBT struggle are living in a fantasy land. They won't lead, but they can be led. And make no mistake about it, Steph curry is being led and that is an important thing for a movement to recognize the starting point for understanding why steph curry's soft condemnation of hb2 matters is his current place in the pop cultural firmament he is huge he's going to be the back-to-back mvp he's ratings gold according to an analysis for morgan stanley he's worth an estimated 14 billion dollars to his sneaker sponsor under armor and under armor is a company that before steph was best known for form-fitting shirts this is a player who can barely dunk, and he's become, in terms of cultural capital, the closest thing we've seen to a fellow North Carolinian, Michael Jordan. Now, given all of this, it was not surprising that Curry's first words on North Carolina's war were milk toast, and they were. There are now corporate pressures on Curry to be the bland pitch man of advertisers dreams. Add to that the fact that Steph Curry is a Pentecostal Christian whose church in Charlotte houses a preacher, as reported by Bob Silverman, who rails against, quote, the homosexual lifestyle and said that the Supreme Court's decision to strike down bans on same sex marriage made him sick to my stomach. That's Steph Curry's church. And then you have the pressure that 2017, the games in Charlotte, that's supposed to be Steph Curry's hero homecoming. All of this made Steph Curry saying something progressive or useful about as likely as him winning the slam dunk contest. And that's why his comments that, quote, no one should be discriminated against matter. These are powerful words and certainly stronger than anything Michael Jordan has ever said about anything. Now, I strongly disagree with the sporting news analysis of these comments, which read, Quote, no matter how Curry answers those questions, he won't win. there will always be someone who doesn't agree or says Curry is wrong. For now, all he can do is maintain neutral ground. This is poppycock to me. There's nothing neutral about a Pentecostal NBA player with a massive platform going against his church and saying no one should be discriminated against. In fact, doing so is useful. For people like North Carolina NAACP leader, the Reverend William Barber, who's calling for sit-ins in the state capitol against these laws and attempting to build a movement of solidarity linking LGBT issues with black civil rights. Of course, Steph's words are not as hardcore as the ones we've heard from Charles Barkley or Pistons coach Stan Van Gundy, who've called for the all-star game to actually be moved out of Charlotte ASAP. But I would argue that the words of Steph Curry matter a hell of a lot more, especially to young people. And above all else, they're a tribute to the work done by LGBT activists and allies. The politicians of North Carolina in attacking trans people in particular misjudge the amount of groundwork built by LGBT people to fight this kind of garbage. The 90s are over. In 2016, Pentecostal superstars call for the end of codified discrimination. And that means it's getting better. And we should recognize that. And now it's time for the Just Stand Up Award. This is one we recorded last week, but our interview with Robert Lipsight, which people can go back and listen to at edgeofsportspodcast.com, was so mind-blowing, we just kept the whole thing and had to edit out everything else. So go back and listen to the Lipsight interview if you haven't yet, but here's our Just Stand Up Award from last week. It still deserves to be mentioned. Former Ohio State quarterback Cardale Jones. Cardale Jones, of course, is done with Ohio State, getting ready for the NFL draft. And the fact that he has not been drafted yet, the fact that there is a lot of debate about where Cardale Jones should go, uh, a first round talent who some people have dropping into the fifth round. I got to tell you, like that just makes what he said all the braver because he's saying it at a time where people are judging his every move to discern his character. And for people like myself and Dan Bloom, Dustin Foote, those of us doing this show, I mean, this to us says he has great character. But the people in the NFL executive suites, they judge character very differently. So if you missed it, this is what Cardale did. He took to Twitter and, by the way, Cardale Jones's Twitter game, always been on point. And what he did was he started by writing this. I'm just going to read him down. I'm so happy to be done with the NCAA and their rules and regulations. They do any and everything to exploited collegiate athletes. Then tweet number two. It's deeper than athletes thinking we should get paid. The NCAA controls our lives with insane and unfair rules. Then Why shouldn't a collegiate athlete be able to use their own likeness and brand to benefit themselves, but yet the NCAA can sell their jerseys? And then that's my two cents on the NCAA. It's not like that's going to change how athletes are exploited, even though 98% of people, and by people I believe he means the athletes themselves, feel the same way. Now, these are... Absolutely amazing, clear-headed points. And except for people like ESPN's Darren Ravel, somebody who makes a tremendous amount of money off the labor of these athletes, in other words, except for professional parasites, most people would say, my goodness, that is such a fair point. Why can't someone control their own damn likeness and make some coin? Especially if you think about someone like Cardale Jones, who emerged out of nowhere, a year ago, to lead Ohio State to the national championship. Total Cinderella story, but there was no Wheaties box for Cardale Jones. There was only selling his likenesses for the benefit of Ohio State so they could pay their coach Urban Meyer $7.5 million a year and give him the use of a private plane. It's an absurd system, and unless you are a professional parasite, you are going to see baldly and plainly that this system needs to dramatically change. The reason why I wanted to give this shout out to Cardale Jones is that I just could not believe the amount of racism that flooded uh, my timeline when I tweeted what Cardale had to say. And what bothered me so much about the people taking shots at his grammar, uh, about t- taking shots at the color of his skin, taking shots at the fact that he should, he should be grateful for everything Ohio State has done for him, all these things like that. The thing that bothered me is that I'm very inside these debates on social media about the NCAA. And what I've noticed is that when people like Taylor Branch or Patrick Ruby, I mean, people who are really respected thinkers who oppose the NCAA and what they stand for, when they make their arguments, people argue with them, certainly. But here's Cardale Jones, somebody who actually lives this system. Somebody who grew up in poverty, somebody who became an NCAA sensation, someone whose labor was utterly exploited at Ohio State to the tune of millions of dollars. Here's Cardale Jones. And he's also having the courage to talk about this before the NFL draft. And instead of people giving that more credence, they're giving it less. And that, to me, gives away the game about how people view college athletes. Because as much as I love Taylor Branch, as much as I love Patrick Ruby, I could totally understand why the response to them could be, well, you didn't play the game. You didn't play D1 football. Who are you to say that it's exploitative? But now here's Cardale Jones saying, I did play. I won a national championship. Not only am I saying it's exploitative, but 98% of my people agree. That should be the SmackDown argument of all SmackDown arguments. That should provoke respectful silence or just the click on the RT button on your Twitter. That's what it should provoke. But instead, it provokes hatred and vitriol. And that says so much about this system. That says so much about why Taylor Branch says that college football has quote unquote the whiff of the plantation and that's why people like Dr. Harry Edwards who people can listen to on a back episode of Edge of Sports has been calling out this system for 50 years so Twitter racist anti-Cardale Jones folks out there guess what all your responses are doing is giving the game away So thanks, everybody, for listening to the Edge of Sports podcast. You can follow me, Dave Zirin, on Twitter at Edge of Sports. Send us email, at slate.com, And please subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcast app of choice so you can be sure to never miss an episode. Last week, as mentioned before, we talked to the longtime New York Times sports writer and ESPN ombudsman Bob Lipsight, and it was off the chain. So be sure to go back and hear that show if you missed out. Edge of Sports is produced by Dan Bloom for the Panoply Network. Our intern is the great Dustin Foote. Also, thank you so much to Isabel Tier and everybody at Georgetown fighting for justice on our college campuses And thank you, Kamau Bell, this Sunday, 10 p.m. Eastern, United Shades of America, CNN. You don't want to miss it. We are out of here. Peace.